How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leesley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, and today we have a special bonus episode for you that was previously recorded by the Gospel Business Strategies podcast. Now, as we are working on our 2019 season, we've got some great Ask Dr. E episodes for you, some teaching in Second Peter, some other series that we're working on, but Kent Lapp, the host of the Gospel Business Strategies podcast, had Michael on his show a few weeks back in December, and the Gospel Business Strategies podcast features honest conversations with noteworthy minds who share a passion for being challenged in business and faith. And so we thought, as we're still working on our 2019 season, we would re-release this conversation for you all to hear a different side. Michael Easley is not the interviewer this time, he's the interviewee. So Kent and Michael have a great conversation that we're excited for you to hear now. Well, Dr. Easy, thanks for being on the show. You bet, man. Really appreciate your time. uh, Appreciate it. Yeah. So behind me is a stack of Mansfield's book for manly men. (laughs) So I'm curious. I mean, there's a stack back there. Do you just like the book? Do you give it away often? Because I've read his book a few years ago, and I really, really like it. Steven's a good friend. Okay. He's a good friend. And uh, I have some men's groups that I lead. And uh, he, he a while back said, "Hey, I got boxes of these. If you want some, so I took, okay. I took ten of each to give to some of the young guys that I that I mentor, just as a conversation starter." Yeah. So, but Mansfield's a good friend, and I learned a lot from him. And we have some really good arguments together. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to jump all around. I'm sure because this question wasn't pre-planned, and uh, but I'm actually curious with your experiences and at your stage, where do you find? community that brotherhood that mansfield talks about to keep you sharp to keep you accountable to keep you pressing forward one of the things i've done i learned years ago was to be a person that took initiative Mm -hmm. because if i want to be around people of influence and you know someone that can help me i'm going to chase them Mm. Uh, and I, i tell younger men to be a kind persistent person and so from my early teens and 20s, I was always looking for somebody that was further down the road than me. Mm. So uh, my friendship, some of them go back 37, eight years. The longest one is a guy I knew in third grade. And wow. uh, we're still friends to this day. He's wow. a couple years older than me. Is he in Nashville or is he somewhere he else? He lives in Texas, up. New okay. Braunfels. But you keep up? I doubt 10 days go by, we don't talk. Wow. And I've probably got six men that I would say know my soul. I know theirs. Dave Gibson, who's been a friend for 37 plus years now, we have this saying, uh, do you need a dope slap or do you need encouragement? (laughs) You know, and I think one of the challenges of men in general is they don't have that collegiality that Band of Brothers Manfields talks about, however you want to label it. But men who know your secrets, men who are on your side, men you can run to. I've had lots of surgeries and those guys were praying for me. They would you know, get on a plane if I asked them to. One did when I was in Chicago, didn't even want him to come. Next thing I knew, he was at my house in, in Illinois. 
So that has been to me, I need it. Yep. I need other men who love me enough to tell me the truth, encourage me when I need encouragement. And, you know, we would do stuff together, you know, hunting, fishing, climbing, backpacking, you know, whatever it is we're into. But walking this Christian life with other people that are headed in the same direction is critical. And what do you say to the young guy who sees the need in his own life for that community and yet feels like he is being a burden or maybe bothersome if he reaches out to an older guy that is further ahead of him on the same journey, but he doesn't want to you know, be a, a drag on his sure. time. What, what, what do you say A couple things. One, uh, in my generation, we talked about the generation gap in the 70s. Vietnam War was a good illustration where the administration, they were anti-establishmentarianism. And that, you know, we're, it's not our war, we won't go. And the peace marches and long hair and burning flags. And, and we've seen that disconnect through the decades in the West. It's nothing new. I think the challenge for both sides of the continuum, I have a, not going to probably say it as eloquently as I have in the past, but the old dismiss the young, the young disrespect the old, and there's too much lost in the middle. Mm. Mm-hmm. And somehow you got to bridge that gap. Yep. And the young men that I pursue, it is kind of a one-way street even for me today at 61. The guys that were on my porch last night, I took initiative with all those guys. I didn't, okay. you know. Now, now they'll tell me, you pick the day and night and I'll be there. But rarely would a young man come up to me and say, and I'm not pretentious. I'm not presuming they want something I've got. Yep. But at the same time, I've got a little life experience. Mm -hmm. I've raised four kids. I've got three adopted kids. We've had our challenges. We've been through infertility, back surgeries, chronic pain, moving, changing cities, changing jobs. We all go through that stuff. Yeah. So it's nice if I got someone four, five, ten years ahead of me to say, these are some things I learned. Mm-hmm. To the young guy, I would say, run the risk. You know, okay. invite a guy for coffee. Hey, can I ask you some questions? I'm starting a business, or I'm thinking about leaving my job, or I'm not sure this is the field I went to college for for four years or six years, or whatever. And I don't really like this. And should I be an entrepreneur? What does that mean? I think now the problem for older guys, they don't always know how to communicate mm-hmm. to younger men, and it's, it's that's why I said we have to learn both sides. What do you mean the, by that? When I was your age, okay, I walked uphill in the snow both ways to yeah. school, you know, and and that can, that's off putting to anybody who's a few years younger than you. Sure. And so older men sometimes to be patient with them, you know, you can always ask people about their family, about their career, about their religious beliefs. To me, a good question is probably the most important thing. And so like last night when we sat around, we just didn't yammer about turkey hunting and, you know, whatever. I threw questions at him. And first thing I did, because some of these guys didn't know each other, was tell us your story, how you came to Christ. And I always love hearing that. Yeah. And then the next question was, you know, who was like an influential person in your life and why? Hmm. So I don't want to sit there and talk about movies and you know activities and hunting season and all that endlessly. I enjoy yeah. that like anybody. Yeah. But at some point, let's go a little deeper into you know how's your marriage? Yeah. How are your kids doing? You know what, what's that one teenager that's breaking your heart right now? Yeah. Your wife wants four kids. You're not sure you want any. Mm-hmm. Um, you know your sex life when you're a young man gets you know cattywampus when you start having little kids. Mm-hmm. What are you doing about that? Mm. And the good part is. I find young men are eager to talk about that. Yeah. 
The hard part is most older men are probably insecure. They probably have their own struggles. They don't know how to answer those questions. So it's it's a little bit bad analogy, but like dating. You know, hang out with this person. Do we get along? Yeah. Do we like the same food? Do we like right. to go shoot guns? Do we like to hunt? Do we like to fish? Do we like to watch movies together, read books together? And you got to find that time and a common interest. Yeah. Or to me, the, the, the irreducible minimum. Got you and I, to be friends, we'd have to have time together, mm-hmm. and we'd have to have something in common, mm-hmm. or we can't go anywhere. Yeah. So you're saying to the young guy, take the risk, ask. Worst case scenario, the older, more experienced guy says, you know what, that'd be great, I just don't have time right now, and it's a no for now. Or you have right. coffee with him once, and it goes nowhere, move on. Yeah. Okay. Move on. Yep. Yeah, thanks for that. So a question that I did have planned for you was, and you mentioned it just briefly in passing is I wasn't able to find a lot of information on this, but my understanding is that you do deal with chronic pain. So I'd love to hear more about what, what that is or what that's like. But my question is then how do you push through something that I'm assuming is so painful, so prevailing and even so distracting? Big subject. Um, try to be brief. Um, 2000 in my forties, I am uh, playing racquetball two, three times a week. I've got a personal trainer. I core aerate my yard. I spend all spring in my yard trimming trees, planting. I can change out the water heater in the house, the water pump on the car. I can do my own brake jobs. I can fix plumbing. I'm not real good with electricity. It <laughs> <Not laughs> only takes friend. once. No, like, I'm not yeah, going back there. Hire, hire my friend. Yeah. <laughs> I can do plumbing and sweat pipe. I don't like to do it. Um, point was i was raised in a culture where you figured it out and you did it i start having pain issues i won't belabor but it took several months to isolate that the pain was located in what's your lower lumbar region l45 s1 85 percent of all men will seek medical attention for a lower back issue in their life uh, they might throw their back out in the yard or sneeze or pick something up most of that will heal in time Unfortunately, I have what's called degenerative disc disease, probably because I was a little taller, probably because I was an athlete, actually worked against me. Mm. So fast forward, you go through all kinds of therapies, you try treatments, acupuncture, chiropractors, physical therapy modalities, over-the-counter drugs, pain medications, shots, injections, treatments, and finally you have, at some point, if it doesn't resolve, so I had surgeries in my lower back, three in the lower back, and the major surgery was in 2010 where they fused my neck. And so you have uh, seven cervical vertebrae, C3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then T would basically be your first rib, let's call it, your collarbone rib. So they fused from C3, 4, 5, 6, 7 to T1 on the back of my neck. So I've got rods and pins and screws back there holding wow. my neck together. And God never intended our spine to be cut on and fused and so although it helps certain things there's unintended consequences so degenerative disease is a spinal issue and because the spine conducts your pain when you hit your foot on the bed at night yep it's the spinal cord that sends that information to the brain hey ouch stop well now you're dealing with the conductive mechanism god put in our bodies and so that is affected and so Chronic pain and spinal column issues is a very difficult thing to treat. So all that to say, I've been on the 
drugs. I've had the back surgeries. I was on opioids, high levels for years in God's kindness. I'm off all that stuff now. Mm. I take a uh, non-opioid medication that helps a little. Mm. But you used a, a key word, Kent, um, uh, distraction. I call pain the, the chronic distraction, the persistent tra- distraction. Mm. And you know, if I sit in that chair and I'm working on those computer monitors and reading, and it's to a point where I can't focus or function, then I have to take medications. I move around a little bit. I can't do a lot. but And I spend about 15% of my time talking to people with chronic issues because you've got to find a way through this, and it's not just taking more pills. Hmm. You're talking to them to get help through this? No, no, no. This this chapter is now me helping them through. I've got, in God's kindness, a Rolodex or on the phone, a list of very close friends that are in the medical community they know my issues. They trust me in my use of medications. And each year I get an MR and an X-ray, and I'll go do sort of a review of my uh, spine, uh, not to bore you with details, but it's degenerative in nature. It's mm-hmm. not getting better. And so I don't want a fifth surgery, but there's more than likely one or two more in my future. Mm. And so you're delaying that as long as possible. So uh, the medical community want to help you, but it's complicated. So I've developed very close friends in the medical community mm. and to say, hey, uh, if I need a favor, can you talk to me? I don't want opioids. I just want some counsel I see. and working that. But the other side of it has been people hear my story. You may not know Johnny Erickson Tata, but she's mm-hmm. a dear friend. She's been in a wheelchair for 51 years this mm-hmm. year. Very close friends to Cindy and me and her husband, Ken. Uh, here she is, a quadriplegic. You could cut her leg and she couldn't feel it, but she mm. deals with chronic pain. Mm. from her spine mm. so a lot of people live in chronic pain and you know opioids and um, other medications don't really help they're distractions they don't really help but when you're grinding your teeth when you're wishing you're going to die when the doctors can't help you the drugs can't help you your faith is there but you're still in pain yeah so I, I have this sort of primer I work through with people. I have a friend dying of prostate cancer as we speak, and we get together every couple of weeks, and I just go through this little primer. Are you, are you being your own advocate? You know, laying on the floor or laying in bed or watching TV all day is not going to help you. You've got to be your own advocate. Yeah. What does that mean? you got to get up. you got to shave. you got to shower. you got to put some clothes on. you got to run an errand. Yeah. Wash a load of clothes. you got to make breakfast. I mean, it's incremental things. You need to make an appointment. It's so hard to see a doctor today. It's so hard to get an appointment for an MRI or an X-ray or a CT scan or see a pain management doctor because there's so many sick people. And so I just help them through the being your own advocate, what that means. When it comes to your line of work, it's a creative process. And it's like it's one thing when you're dealing with pain, you just got to kind of buck up and go to your job. But I feel like it's another thing when it's like you're trying to overcome this pain because you need to think clearly. Yeah. How do you get past that as a child? Um, I, I don't have any simple answers um there there, there's sort of a a cycle in my world you know i'm a bookish guy i'm an academic i'm behind you know a text and commentaries and writing and there are times you just have to take a break and um, i've done it long enough i've got kind of a process Hmm. so it's not as i'm reinventing the wheel every week to prepare a text let's just say but I, i would say the harder part for me kent is in the course of relationships because um, whether it's my wife, my kids, uh, friends, their problems, and I don't mean to be unkind, but it can be a hangnail compared to what I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. 
you know i'm dying over here yeah and you're complaining about this or that and and i don't mean that unkindly but that's where people go who live in chronic pain yeah and one of the best things i've learned because when people do come to me and say you know i thought about you all weekend i threw out my back i know how, how do you do this i was just down for a day and i'll say number one it's not a competition number mm-hmm. two there's no comparison mm-hmm. your pain is your pain whether it's your marriage your emotional your kid breaking your heart you got fired your your money's up it doesn't matter pain is a reality we all experience so the relational capital is me more critical and i have learned i'm a little bit of a monk i need to be away from people when i'm really in intractable pain okay so we might have to cancel social engagements we might have to say i could probably power through it but i know myself now to know i'd be miserable if i went to the symphony and then just sit there for two and a half hours. I see. Um, so give somebody else the ticket, Cindy. You go with someone else and some friends. And that's just something you navigate. And in God's kindness, it's seasonal. You know, sometimes yeah. it's better than others. Yep. So I promise I'll quit doing this, but we oh. saw the Valley of Vision. Yes. So how long have you had that? How do you use that? Um, if you pay attention to preachers, you know what they struggle with. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a lot of books on prayer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wrote a book on prayer, uh, which is just self-evident of how lousy I am at praying. But I came across this long before it was a leather-bound edition. I forget when the paperback, and I had paperbacks glued and had rubber bands on them. Really? I mean, I got them marked up, you know, like a Bible. I love the the language of what Bennett did here is an interesting story, um, but he arranged sermons and lyrics to a sort of poetic form they weren't all written this way he sort of took great liberty let's say oh and wrote these prayers the editor uh, essentially arthur bennett who's with the lord uh, he only wrote one of the prayers called valley of vision and the rest of them are for alexander Toplady and spurgeon all kinds of people that are not attributed there's no attribution in the book so all that to say the theology can be a little wonky in places but it's just these men and women prayed in a language that when i teach on prayer i'll say i triple dog dare you not to say the same prayer at lunch you said the last 27 lunches Mm. we're talking to the god of the universe and we use cliches and synonyms Mm -hmm. every time we pray and this one ken boa's book handbook to prayer is one that i take our young couples and mentors that uh, that i work with and it's a it's a 90 day thing and what ken did here was so cool he just took scrutiny a lot of thought I'm, I'm making it sound simple but he takes passages of scripture he simplifies them a bit his own translations he's a good hebrew and greek student so he does a good rendering and then he has bullets so read these verses and then pray these bullets and it's a 90 day program with some extra supplemental material and the thing I love about these books is when I don't feel like worshiping, when I don't feel like reading the Bible, when I'm angry, mad, distant, apathetic, either one of these will get me recalibrated very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I, I carry them with me. I have them electronically, but I like I prefer the book because I'm not distracted with the technology. Yeah. And so prayer, and, and, and there are certain passages that, you know, I clung to desperately uh, during Second uh, Corinthians one three through seven is the litany of, you know, with this affliction for your benefit, this suffering for your benefit, and just to understand 
suffering is part of life prayer is the one way generally speaking communication relationship with god mm-hmm. i don't hear an audible voice mm-hmm. but when i read his word i hear him yeah and so both these texts help me in that prayer to me is a relationship not a ritual it's not a routine it's a relationship yeah and are you and i willing to say i need to spend a few minutes with god yeah undistracted away from the technology away from you know all the things that turn my head and heart yeah i had a friend that recommended the valley of vision within the last year and a half probably certainly two years and at first i thought it was a crazy idea why would i get a book of essentially puritan prayers to read through and pray so after he you know talked about it for a while i got it and in my book at home it's the you know paperback it's page 119 it's the morning devotional i forget exactly what the title (laughs) of prayer is but i read it every morning wow good for you and it's just I find that book really, really encouraging. It's a good book. So I'm actually curious. You say, I was listening to one of your episodes on uh, Mike One Context this morning, and it was from 2016, so I'm sure you don't remember it. But uh, I've but slept said, since then. But, <laughs> but you say that, uh, that wisdom calls us to pay attention to what we're paying attention to. Yeah. And I really like that. And my question is, what should we be paying attention to? The modern business leader there's so much going on and business is not once and done it's all about optimization so should we be paying attention to world news local news politics social media parenting tips business books but there's so much out there what should we be paying attention to boy i'm not a business man or woman obviously and um my experience with government with business with large church organizations is going to be obviously a little different slant i would say a couple things one just in the last 10 15 years the entrepreneurial interest is is fascinating and especially among your peer and age group which i applaud i often say to my old crony friends these guys got more guts and courage than we did because we went to work for companies that had infrastructure these guys are willing to go risk at the same time we're always overcompensating for the liabilities of our elders and i think it's typically unconscious so, when, I mean, you can illustrate it when you, a CEO is fired or has a scandal, he or she, that committee will subconsciously overcompensate for the liabilities of the last leader. And I think we all do this. So that's one point. This entrepreneurial thing can become an idol. I want to do my thing. I mean, my, it's my enterprise, my money, my time, my, my, my. That's not dismissing entrepreneurship. It's just being aware of it. To more specifically your point, when I think of all this, I think of integrity. To me, the, the core attribute, the indivisible integer, you can't divide it. Integrity is probably the single most important part of a businessman or woman or pastor or worker in the field who's working an eight to five or more likely a six to six job, mm-hmm. that he or she is a person of integrity, that your word is what you say you're going to do it, mm-hmm. that you follow through, that you can be trusted, that you keep a secret, that you don't gossip. When you have a problem, you go say, I can't get this done on time. I was wrong on my projection. I find that very, very rarely, unless a person is just wicked and co-opted, are they going to have a hard time with a person that has integrity. Mm-hmm. And so to me, whether it's leadership, entrepreneurship, entree leadership, whether it's you know fill in the blank, I'm looking for a man or woman that knows their strengths, their limitations, uh, where they need help, 
you know, we're, we're, we just started a church recently and I'm doing things I haven't done in 30 plus years. I believe it. Uh, opening a bank account, setting up online track. And I'm going, why am I doing this stuff? I never had to do this before. I'm not an entrepreneur. And, and it struck me the other day when I was fighting with an online bank setup, which should be easy, right? And I was talking to the support and go, yeah, we're having a problem with our servers. I go, well, at least it's not my problem, you know. Yeah. But do you have the elasticity to say, I'm going to do some things, but I'm going to do them well. But I'm going to go back to my little steering committee and say, guys, I don't want to do this. This this is not the best use of my gift, talent, strength. This Don't ask me to be an accountant. Yeah. And so I think that integrity is knowing your strengths and liabilities as well as I need help here and yeah. being unafraid to say, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Can you help me? Yeah. So when you say wisdom calls us to pay attention to what yes. we're paying attention to, do you say that because it's so easy to just get caught up in the buzz and not be aware of what we're paying attention to? And when you realize how much you're paying attention to just things that really don't matter that you realize it's a it's a grand waste of your time or yes. just not a good use of your time is that why you're saying that pay attention to what you're paying attention to and and just think of the trend of entrepreneurs when, when i was younger josie bass or jossie bass however you pronounce it that imperature all the business books bennis nanis uh Kuzis, posner all those guys the harvard business review guys you know that was my shelf had 120 some leadership books on it when i was in a church in dc and texas and when i was in chicago and i read all those books you know all the lencioni books and, and what i discovered in that is it was like pastors used to when someone come on the problem of the marriage here's a book you need to read yeah here's a book you need to read i'm not against that i'm a reader but i think what what kurt thompson by the way dr thompson was the one that gave me that line give credit where credit is due pay attention to what you're paying attention to because whether you're add or adhd or you're too singular focused it's good to take a breath and i mean think of when you open your technology how many apps do you have running yeah, fair bit. And with OS, those of who are in that system, now it's all tied into your screen wherever you are. It's a message, whatever, your social media. I intentionally will have my word processor and my Bible study software as the only two applications going on my machine. Because otherwise, I'm paying attention to social media. Oh, I got to do that email. I actually have three by five cards on my desk. You might see them. That that's my to do list. That gets the distraction out of my head. Mm. I need to do this, mm-hmm. and then I physically will push it aside because it has a life of its own. Yeah, my desk faces a wall, not a window, for a reason. I was squirrel before squirrel was cool. You know, yeah. I can be so distracted by by text. By we work at home. My wife and I work uh, both have offices here. She needs something. I need something. So the singularity or compartmentalizing, what do you have to do today? So in business, if you're starting something or you have a problem, it would seem pretty logical and simple to say, what, what's the big hairy thing I got to address? And then how do I incrementally tackle that? Mm-hmm. I'd much rather email. And I spent an hour this morning emailing a guy with a theological question. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I, I I literally spent an hour answering his email. Was that a good use of my time? I don't know. Yeah. Will he read it? I don't even know that. Yeah. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. That's yeah. a bit of a squirrel. Uh, yeah. I could have said in very brief, let's have a coffee. But that'll be an hour and a half. Yep. 
And so we're always making these value judgments, the urgent and the important come across our table. To more specifically your question, I think there's so many squirrels and rabbits and birds flying through life right now, especially for young men and women. And we're looking at this next seminar, this next webinar, this next subscription, this next thing. I'm shocked with the number of monthly subscriptions 20 and 30 year olds have. Streaming music, different apps they're into, different systems they like, uh, different things that support their web. But Squarespace now, I guess, is the new thing. And they, they just keep bolting on, bolting on these these monthly 9, 8, 7, 10, 15 dollars serious in your car. And I'm going, time out. What do you need? Mm-hmm. And they're ta- they're tantalizing. Mm-hmm. We'll do this for you, you yeah. know. And I think that's a good illustration of what must I do? Yeah. Not what can I do? Yeah. You got to make some money today. Yep. You need to circle back and visit these three clients or these three, you know, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And I've got a system. Even as a pastor, I write probably three to five hand notes every week. It might be to a friend in pain. It might be to a person that was very generous and gave us a check for something. It might be someone I know struggling. Someone said, will you pray for me? I hate saying yes because I'm either going to lie or forget or both. Yeah. So if I say yes, I'm going to take out a little piece of stock card, prayed for you this morning, meaning right now, thought about this verse. Maybe that's a cheater's way to do it, but... That's the way I do it. So I got that hand touch. I'm ministering those people. What do I have to do today? Yeah. And if I told somebody I was going to pray for them, I better pray for them. Yeah. When do you write those cards? Because I'm a big fan of handwritten notes also, and I used to do better at it. And yeah. now I'm I'm not writing handwritten notes at all on a consistent basis. So you said you're doing three to five week. Is there a particular day of the week or time of the day that you're disciplining yourself to crank those I'm up? not that disciplined. I'm a very disciplined person, but in my briefcase, I have a special folder that's got my stock cards, stamps, and envelopes. And so yesterday when I was getting my car washed, I could have looked at this and read news and emails mm-hmm. and texted friends, and I brought that folder out and I cranked out five mm. handwritten cards while they were washing my car. Okay. And so I keep that with me. When I travel especially, we were out of town last week and I wrote two just okay. sitting in a hotel. So it's more looking for that downtime where I could waste it reading articles. And it's not always waste to read articles, but I can get into it. I'm a news junkie and I can get into a sinkhole with news that I read or, you know, something pops up in social media that's theologically, you know, two of my friends are locked in a social media war right now that's pretty loud. And, and <laughs> I, I love to weigh in, but wisdom says, leave it alone easily. <laughs> leave it alone. <laughs> You're not going to help anything. Yeah. Uh, and I can get pulled into that. Yeah. Or I can say, and, and here's the other part of this that you probably know, and, and I never started out doing this. Years ago, there was a guy, it was a crisis. I left my home early, which I didn't usually do. We're having dinner with the family. Yeah, this was a crisis. I went to his house. His daughter, their only child, had gotten pregnant. She was a teenager, and their world was falling apart. And so I go to visit this man and his wife, and I'm there an hour, and we prayed, and uh, I walked home. The next day, we were leaving for vacation. We had two kids at the time. We went up to Vermont. And even back, that's how many years ago, I had cards in my briefcase. Mm. And I had my devotion. We stayed in this beautiful place up in Vermont. And I got up early with my coffee before everybody woke up. And I'm sitting there reading my Bible. And I thought, you know, that would encourage that couple. Mm. 
And I took that card out. I wrote the verses in it. I dated it, thinking about you guys, signed it. If I run into that guy today, and this is probably getting on to 25 more years ago. If I saw him today, again, he would open his Bible. And that card is a bookmark for him. Really? And he said to me, you'll never know what it meant to my wife and me that you were on your vacation and you were thinking about us. Yeah. Now, we all think about our friends on vacation. Yep. We wonder, guys, you know, they, they lost that pregnancy. You know, there's complication in the pregnancy. That couple can't get pregnant. If I'm thinking about them, maybe God's reminding me, you ought to encourage them. Yeah. And the handwritten thing you can see on my desk over there, I, I went back to using um, fountain pens. Oh, okay. Because it forces me to write, to take time. It's tactile. Yep. It's more personal than writing it on a computer or an email. Yes. And I don't care if they save it or not. But sometimes that's a verse that God might use in spite of me. Yes. And they go, wow, I hadn't seen that before. Yes. So. Yeah, that's great insight, keeping the cards handy. That I really, that's that's helpful. Yeah. Throw, throw five or six of them pre-stamped in your briefcase and your, in your you know, thing and keep them with you. Yeah. So you touched on something else that I wanted to ask you about. So I'm going to do that now. So my question is. How do you think about leadership from a gospel-centered worldview? And I want to set it up with two thoughts. And one is, you're clearly a leader. From my understanding, you've led three churches. Now you're starting a fourth one. And by definition, two of those prior churches were large or even mega churches. You've been president and CEO of Moody Bible Institute. And you know clearly you think deeply and care about what God has to say through the Bible on this issue of leadership. The second thing is, there's a lot of leadership hype today, a lot. And sometimes I wonder if the leadership hype has replaced wisdom to a degree. So I'm curious, how do you see wisdom speaking to leadership or even coming back to the initial question, how do you lead from a gospel-centered standpoint? First, let's say God uses imperfect men and women. We have to acknowledge, if we looked at the kings of Israel, Jerusalem, uh, when the, the northern and southern kingdoms split, if memory serves, we had 38 kings, and I want to say north of 19 or more did evil in the sight of the Lord. And this was a monarchy. When you go through Scripture looking for good leaders, you're going to find Moses who strikes a rock. You're going to find you know Joshua who hesitated. You're going to find Jonah who went left when he should have gone right. On down the line, Peter who opens his mouth and denies his Lord. So let's just have the baseline. The ground at Calvary is level. We're all sinners. We're all co-opted. Some of us are megalomaniacs. Some are insecure. All points in between. Secondly, I think for each person, leadership to me is a gift and a skill set. When you look through the New Testament, uh, we could debate the number of gifts, but Paul in Romans 12 has a list of gifts, those who lead diligently. So if we start with a wisdom-based literature of the Old Testament, which would be Proverbs, Psalms, a storyline that we have where halak, the walk of wisdom, to understand what what a wise person does. Proverbs 8, wisdom shout, wisdom calls the simple, the simple, the naive, and the fool. The fool's the one who won't learn. The simple and the naive are able to learn. And wisdom calls from the mountaintops down the hallway. The picture in Proverbs is beautiful because wisdom is personified as a woman. Listen to her, follow her. And if you know Proverbs, what's the antithesis? 
she, the adulteress, she will call you down the corridors and the marketplaces. Her husband is away. You know, come lie with me on the couch. Mm-hmm. People miss this. He's not simply warning a young man to flee immorality. He's personifying wisdom. Wickedness will suck you into the world. Wisdom will call you up. And so Proverbs 31, which is one of my pet peeves, it's not about this great woman. It's a personification allegory of this is what wisdom looks like. Work hard, get up early, care for your family, care for your husband, for your wife. Mm. Wisdom is explained in, in this personification of this is wisdom. So coming back to your question, leaders are distracted. There's a lot of things going on. It has become a bit of a cult this idea of leadership. I have friends who've written books. I won't name their names or the titles of their books, but I kind of cringe when I see one more book on leadership. I have an axiom, if leadership was easy, anyone could do it. If anyone could do it, we wouldn't need leaders. Uh, To be a leader is to be lonely. To be a leader is to be willing to say, I'll step into that. Cormac McCarthy's novel, No Country for Old Men, Mm -hmm. a great line in the front of that uh, book when he talks about, you know, I got to know what I'm getting into. If I'm going to push all my chips into this, I need to know what I'm getting into. Mm -hmm. And leadership, you can't know every outcome, but you've got to be willing to say, I made a mistake. It was a bad decision. I'm sorry. I pop back to integrity. Mm -hmm. I'm rambling. But I think at the end of the day, leadership and common sense are far more important than the latest book trend isomology on the next wave yeah. So it appears to me, and, and I'm young and I'm a novice, so I'm not going to pretend to have great thoughts on this, but it does appear to me like there's sort of a become a popular trend or a common perception that anyone can be sort of a leader if you read the right books and then you have these sort of these steps and then bam, you're a leader. Is that how we should be thinking from a wisdom standpoint, or should we be less concerned about, oh, we're becoming a leader or not, and just more concerned about walking the path that God has for us? Um, There are two kinds of people in this world, those who think there are two kinds of people and everybody else. (laughs) 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 So, uh, yeah, I kind of fall on the side of if you want to be a leader, you need to pursue that. Now, let's talk about the pursuit of leadership. One of my professors is with the Lord, Dr. Howard Hendricks, used to talk about the fat man, the faithful, available, teachable. And he would say, I'm going to come to your church, and I want to I see your fat men. Well, then that became politically incorrect, so he changed it to faith. Uh, it, was, it was faithful, available, integrity, teachable, and humble. And he just put those other words in there so it wasn't fat man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still like fat man better. Yeah. But, but his comment was, you give him a task. Will you help with the Bible study? Sure. That means making coffee at 6 a.m., ready to go for 80 people. Oh, man, I, I want to teach the Bible. I need somebody to make coffee. And then his comment was, as you are empowering these people and giving them tasks, do they follow through back to integrity? And to he who's given, more is given. And so you give them more responsibility. So I look back on lessons learned. What has this person done? And whether it was sports, academics, achievement, what have they done? Where are they going in life? What are they doing? And then how do we coax them along? Now, mm-hmm. Back to you again to be more precise to your question. I don't think everyone can lead. Yeah. I think you can learn some skills 
to get you from A to B. But I think there's an elasticity to our personalities. I have a friend who's an accountant, and she is an extraordinary accountant. She's not a leader. Mm-hmm. It would discombobulate her mm-hmm. to give her a group of accountants whom she had to lead and manage. Mm-hmm. And she's done that. But she finds more joy having her own business, having a few clients on her terms. I have another friend that owns a mortgage company, and he's really not that great with mortgages, but he knows how to find talent, and he knows how to lead people, and he is making a a very successful business for him and a lot of employees Mm -hmm. because he knows how to do mortgages. My wife's a realtor. She likes to work alone. She doesn't want to hire other realtors to work with her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to manage other people. She, she's got an elasticity with clients, with inspectors, with uh, lenders. And so each of us, we do have an incremental, let's, or let's say a sphere of leadership. Yeah. If I take a golf ball and throw it on the ground, it makes a golf ball size dent. If I take a bowling ball and throw it on the ground, it makes a bowling ball size dent. And some of us are a little more dense, so we can make a bigger dent. And and God uses us in spite of it. So I, I think yep. to the high level is not everybody can lead. You're going to find out by trying. Yeah. I can't run a four-minute mile. It doesn't matter how many trainers, diets, videos, programs. Yeah. I would never run a four-minute mile, period. Does that mean I'm a worthless person? No. It means yeah. I'm not a four-minute miler. Yeah. Yep. So this is shifting gears just a little bit, but I, I'm also curious with your experiences as a pastor and then also having friends that are in the business world, have you seen misunderstandings in churches at large between its business people and its pastors? And and if so, what, what's to be done about that? Most pastors are pretty clueless about, now I'm speaking in my generation, are pretty clueless about businessmen and women we went to the seminary you know we spent all our years in books and we don't understand commerce we also and i would say this for most pastors i think younger pastors are are, are learning at a better curve than we did but most of us were uncomfortable with wealth we were uncomfortable asking or talking about money we were uncomfortable with the business side of church hiring and firing and again as i said earlier we've overcompensated the church has become a business in my view and it's run by young entrepreneurial people, yeah. in my point of view. So spirituality has been set aside. So we're always mm-hmm. overcompensating. We weren't right and they're wrong or vice versa. What I do observe in, in this chapter of life is I have friends that are extraordinarily wealthy. And they're not impressed with me and I'm not impressed with them. We're friends. Yeah. I respect what they've done. And they were, I mean, so, so a, a very wealthy, powerful person invites me to go with him or her on a trip or vacation or have us over for a dinner that we couldn't afford. And I'm in their home and I'm a good enough friend now with this person that I'm not in your league. Why, why would you? And you know, this, I remember this happened. I was 20 years old and this guy gave me that dope slap, so to speak. And he mm-hmm. said, I respect you for who you are, for what you've accomplished you are, let's call it a subject matter expert, SME, in Bible and theology. I learned from you things I don't know. I didn't go to seminary. I don't know the Bible like you do. I don't study it like you do. You contribute to my life. Mm-hmm. I'm a business person. I do this on the backstroke. Mm-hmm. This is routine for me. And so he gave me an education when I was in my late 20s to say, look, I respect you for who God is. And what I learned from that, Kent, was People of wealth and power and success 
they know, they smell it if you're after them for the wrong reason. Yeah. If you just want to be their friend, learn from them, hang, if you can cut up with them and not be a jerk, I mean, there's a capital that you build in that relationship. So Mm -hmm. I would say the younger generation gets business better than I did at that chapter. The problem is the church has become a business. The title changes for employees. We're not pastors anymore. We're directional leaders. We're strategic visionary thinkers. We're arts directors. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It's reflective of the change in the church culture. Mm -hmm. And it has become a business model. Strategic opportunities, you know. uh, And and so just the language of business has worked its way into the fabric of the church. And and I would critique that. I would say... Are you sharing the person and work of Jesus Christ? Is that more important in your business model? Mm, mm-hmm. And I love the business model. I love people that can figure out budgets and buildings and missions, You know what it's going to cost to do this or that. We need that. That's a contribution of leadership and gifting in the body of Christ that we need. Yep. But I'm going to argue. Three things run the church. Money, vision, power. This should be real baseline. Money, vision, and power. I was asked this question years ago. And they said, you can only control one. What do you want to control? Hmm. Hypothetically. And I said, vision, of course. And he said, right. Hmm. Because if you control vision, meaning lead the vision, money and power will follow. Mm -hmm. If you control power in the church, then you're a dictator. If you control money in the church, you're a business person who's filthy lucre. You're about money. Mm -hmm. And neither one of those are, they're important. Mm-hmm. But the vision is to make disciples of all ethnos, is the Greek word, all nations, baptizing them, identifying them, and then the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So we don't have to go to the mountain to find a vision, I don't believe. Mm-hmm. Jesus was really clear about the mandate and then great, the greatest commandment, you know, love your neighbor, so forth and so on. So the Bible's pretty clear on this issue. Mm-hmm. Back to business. We're always overcompensating, usually unconsciously. Yeah. And I will predict in eight, 10 years, you're going to see another recalibration. Churches will get tired of the programs, the strategy, strategic language, on the multi campus venue, you know, yeah. all this, all the technology, the live streaming. I mean, goodness me, oh my, it's going to be very different in 10 years. Yeah. So you think, you think we're within 10 years of sort of wearing off on some of that stuff? I think it's already showing. Well, I would yeah. I would agree with yeah. that. It's I think showing. it's about time. The multi church thing has had its day. Okay, uh, it, it's it's going to flatten out real fast. Okay, there are always exceptions. Sure, um, and I don't mean to speak ill of anyone. The Vineyard Movement with John Wimber, Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Movement, uh, Bill Hybels, the Willow, the uh, Seeker Model, all those have flattened. I mean, the Vineyard Movement's gone. There are a handful of vineyard churches in the country. The purpose-driven church is still very alive and thriving, but the purpose-driven marketing is gone. Mm. There's no more purpose-driven life seminar, no more purpose-driven country seminar. You know, yeah. they, they let go a lot of those people. And to Rick's credit, he's recalibrated. I see. And I respect that. I see. Of course, the Hybels and the Willow Creek model is a different story, but uh, the seeker-sensitive thing flattened out a long time ago. Yeah. And the Willow Association did a study on that that called Reveal. Remember the study they did? Okay, I don't remember okay, that. Okay, so Willow Creek was the seeker-sensitive service. So, you know, get rid of hymnology. Don't quote Spurgeon. You know, uh, you want to have the six-part series on how to be a good friend. I mean, it was bring your non-Christian friend. Great. It, so, so forth and so on. Which was what Robert Schuler was doing in the 70s on television. 
in a different way. Nothing's new. And so they did this big study called Reveal, and they found out their people weren't clear on the gospel. They weren't becoming disciples. And so they came to a church I was involved with at the time, and they had done their study, and they wanted us to be one of the guinea pigs to use their new study on how to get the church back into discipleship. Mm. And I'm not very diplomatic, and I said to them, are you kidding me? You've been doing this wrong for how long? And eight weeks later, you got the solution? Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, they weren't happy with me, nor, nor was my staff, but I, I didn't care. I got nothing to prove. Yeah. I said, I'm sorry. I'm not Willow Creek or Saddleback or the first big church of the world, but yeah. I'm trying to make disciples. That's what Jesus said. Yeah. And I can point you to some people that I think are learning to be disciples. Yeah. Not because of me, but because we're doing what's – it's like stewardship. If you manage your money, live under your income, spend less than you earn, you give, you avoid debt – uh, you know, over time, you're going to be fine. Yeah. You will be fine. Yeah. That's not, you don't have to go get an MBA from Wharton to, to know that, you yeah. know? And so at the same with the church, are you making disciples? So I think a lot of this stuff, it, it all cycles. Hendricks, again, my professor, uh, Dr. Hendricks, off said, give it 10 years. Mm-hmm. Give it 10 years. The churches I grew up in where the Bible was a book, there was a 45-minute sermon, the music was pretty much, you know, boring, it was an organ and some people that probably shouldn't be singing songs. That church existed from 1940 to 1980 and did an awful lot of good that nobody ever acknowledges. Yeah. Did they recalibrate? No. Mm-hmm. But there's only two things that are eternal, God's word and God's people. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you touched on something that I see as really sad is, you know, there's a law in marketing. There's a law of the category. Like you get one, like. FedEx, you think of like overnight shipping, but you get one, you know, like Snickers is like, are you hungry or whatever? You get one, you get one spot in people's mind. And I've seen some of these pastors in my mind. I mean, this is just, I'm not a pastor and I understand God has, there's equal dignity on whether you're a business person or a pastor. Okay. But in my mind, there is a specialness to the role of a pastor and you're expositing the gospel. You're expositing God's word. Okay. Why would you ever try to have a different category than that. Like, you know, like be the leadership expert when you're a pastor, we please be a pastor because we need pastors. So you're touching on something that, that I have wondered about and felt like maybe we're we're taking the leadership thing a little too far in some cases. Part of it, I would just add, I think a lot of these, you know, the, the, the church in America, of course, is very different than it was even two decades ago, but 95% of the churches in America are less than a hundred people. Wow. So you can argue God likes small churches or pastors are really crummy leaders or somewhere in between. Of those churches that I have known and had friends who've pastored and struggled at small churches, many of them are ill-equipped. Some of them are in a static community. If you're in a, a small town in Ohio, if you're in Peoria, Illinois, you know, you're not going to have a catchment of thousands of people to be a mega church or a super church. If you have a church of 100 or 200, that may be the the, the infrastructure God gives you to serve in. Yeah. Now, some of those pastors, and I, I've spoken to them in workshops for decades, they're lazy, they're indolent in the scripture. They really don't like their job. They're overweight. They're unkept. Their marriage is so-so. And I go back to integrity. Hmm. And are, are you in the Word? Are you growing? Are you candid with your struggles? Are you and your wife growing? Are you are you pouring into people? I, I would tell these young guys, of course, ministries change. First Timothy, 
In your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example. Mm-hmm. Your speech, what you say, conduct, what you do, love, what you show, faith, what you believe, purity, what you intend. In your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of tupos. And Paul is telling the younger Timothy there how to deal with older men. Hmm. In your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example. And so I would teach these pastors workshops and say, guys, because in, in God's kindness, I had a pretty good run with elders most of the 30 plus years I was in church. There's always exceptions, but, and I won't say it was me because I was crosswise with elders in recent years, but I would pursue those guys. I want to go see where they work, take them to lunch, buy them a coffee. Let's go on a vacation as a couple. And you can do this in any size church with key leaders or people that might be leaders. Pursue these people mm-hmm. that God loves and died for. Mm-hmm. And as you get to know their heartache and their hurt and their humanity, they'll follow you anywhere. Yeah. And that's not an abusive thing. That's like, what's important to you, Kent? When you go home, your marriage, your struggle, your challenges. I mean, and, and the fact that somebody cared about that. Mm-hmm. And before you left lunch, say, hey, can we pray about that? That's pretty powerful business. Yeah. Yep. Instead of strategic marketing satisfaction, you know, we deliver, you know, Coke is it. I mean, you, you take your pick. Business world's over infiltrated ministry mindset, probably to a large degree. Yeah. Now, another thing that I know you, you care a lot about is discipleship. So I guess is disciple making sort of for the everyday believer? And I think that's a bad question because I think that answer is yes. But. How do you see discipleship playing out successfully in the lives of busy people or maybe even busy business people with a lot of leadership responsibility? Um, Busyness is an excuse. We all have 24 hours in a day. We all have seven days a week. Nobody gets any more. C.S. Lewis, I think, said, saying I don't have enough time is like a fish in the ocean saying there's not enough water. Mm. So time is not our enemy. Time is our context, number one. So busyness is no excuse. Prioritization is what it requires, what's important. So back to one of your earlier questions about you know focus and distractions and what, what leadership book do you read? We're wired differently. Let's go back to that. We're level ground. Not everybody's going to be able to do all these things. But I do believe um, we were commissioned by Christ to make disciples of all ethnos, baptizing them and that's not about getting wet or mowed simply that's about identifying them make mathetes make a disciple a disciple is not a disciple until he or she has reproduced Hmm. so if i'm a clarinet teacher and i teach my students to play clarinet i'm just a teacher if one of my students teaches clarinet i have now made a disciple I see. Mm-hmm. So discipleship is multiplication. And mm-hmm. uh, Paul to Timothy, entrust to faithful men what who will be able to teach others also. Mm-hmm. And that entrust term is a banking term. Put it mm-hmm. somewhere where it's invested. Mm-hmm. Back to the fat man, faithful, available, teachable. Give it to somebody who's going to utilize it. So discipleship, number one, we have overwrought this whole thing like we always do. We've got programs. We've got fill-in-the-blank books. Let's go back. What did Jesus do? What did he say about Mathetes? The rabbinic community in the first century completely understood discipleship. This was not a new term. There was a rabbi who had a following. 
If you visited an old school African-American church, a buddy of mine in the south side of Chicago, he has his men. And they're from junior high to high school age, and they all got uh, dress pants, a white shirt tucked in with a tie. Okay. And they are there, and they follow the pastor around all morning long. Hmm. Back in his study, when he prays, when he's meeting with the deacons, when he goes up for the pulpit, they sit on the front row. Those are his men. And it's remarkable in the African-American culture how many of those kind of young men will go into ministry. Because hmm. an older man said, you need to tuck your shirt in. I want a tie on there next week. You know, I don't want those shoes. I want them, I want them tied up. Yep. Don't let those pants be hanging. And he'll, he'll yeah. tell them that. Yeah. I don't want those pants hanging on your back. I want them yeah. up with a belt. Yeah. <laughs> and some older man took interest. Now, not all of them, are, but he's discipling young men. Yeah. Jesus spent time with them. And that picture, I digress, that picture is a rabbinic picture. You studied under a rabbi. You ever seen these movies where they have a, a Jewish synagogue classroom and the rabbis at the end they use these little scribal things and they're reading the hebrew text and they're talking about it and the rabbinic model was you didn't say i think this verse means or what does this mean to you the mm -hmm. rabbinic model was rabbi shamel said this about this verse rabbi gamaliel said this it was case law so you cited the scholars of what they said about the problem with that passage so the students, the rabbinical studies, understood discipleship better than the Gentile. So you're following a master teacher to become like him. Hmm. So let's go back to first century. That's what he commissions them, make disciples of all nations. He sends them out in pairs and couples, come back. By the time we have the New Testament, the model's there. Acts 2.42, the disciples are devoted to teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, breaking bread, and they're instructing and training them to make disciples of all ethnos. Isn't that a cool word? Ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. Not just the ones that look like you and me. All mm -hmm. ethnos. So the gospel isn't hard. We make it complicated. Yeah. So I go to a simple formula. Jesus took three years to spend with 12 guys, and one was a defector. I'm not saying there's any magic number. Cindy and I use a two-year program. And the prioritization of a busy person is this is a lot of time. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do this. I'm not going to guilt or shame you to do it. Two things are eternal, God's word and God's people. Mm. Your business is an eternal. Your money is an eternal. Your empire is an eternal. The last house you buy is an eternal. People and God's word. So I decided early in my life I'm going to put my shoulder to that wheel. Mm. And I joke about, you know, God lets me pretend I'm pushing. <laughs> you know. So you have this model where you, yeah. you will take is it 12 or 15 or So what we what we've three? done and it varies uh can't what we've done most recently is we handpick five or uh, seven or eight couples. We've vet okay. them. Okay, you and your wife are doing this together? We have with, uh I right see. now we've taken a hiatus. I'm okay. I'm dabbling with a group of men mm -hmm. and I've gone to them all I pursued all of them one on one. Oh, I see. Okay. And I said, "Okay, guys, uh this is a departure recalibration for what mm -hmm. I've been doing. Mm -hmm. Uh I got about a two-year idea in mind. Mm -hmm. Let's talk through it." I haven't had them sign the deal yet, but it it will be the same what we do with couples. What we do with couples is we handpick these couples, we vetted them. They fill out an application. Hmm. Uh, we'll meet with them and talk to them. And so what our program looked like was two years every Sunday night in our home for about two and a half, three hours. 
And then if you and your wife were in our group, you're on my rotating schedule. I'm going to take you to lunch every four or five, six weeks on my schedule. Mm. We're going to do group activities with the guys, with the gals. We're going to do a service project during the year if we can find a good one to do. I hate the cliche, doing life together. You know, sure. but we're, we're, we're involved in their lives. Yep. I can go do a service project. We had a, a guy who was deployed overseas. He had five kids. We went over and did their trim trees, yard work, mulch, stuff hadn't been done in years. Mm. And uh, took this whole team over there. What I learned in that one day working with those young couples, I couldn't have learned in six months being in my house. Mm-hmm. Who were the workers? Who were the whiners? Who were the people that were creative? I mean, it was, it was amazing what I learned in a 10-hour Saturday workday. Yeah. So, and then you're spending time with them one-on-one. I mean, I, I came to Tennessee 10 years ago, and uh, all these guys were into guns. And so they're dragging me out. And we're shooting paper targets. And, I mean, it, you know, I went into that. And, of course, now I'm knee-deep into it, you know. But it was it was time and a common interest. Yeah. Now, it's my job as a discipler to ask the right questions. Okay. Yep. And then it becomes a two-way street. I learn yep. as much from them as they do. But so two years, we take them through a how to study the Bible program. We take them through a theology handbook, which is a stretch for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but my contention is you've got to know the Bible, but you've got to learn to think critically. And if I asked you, explain the baptism of the Holy Spirit to me. You're not going to turn three verses and do that. Mm. You're going to need a, a a theological grid to understand when baptisms occurred, why they occurred, mm-hmm. why did the Jews baptize, because they did, mm-hmm. and then how does that translate to what Jesus said when he said to baptize people, mm-hmm. and what does it mean today? So that's theology. Yep. So we're going to take them to how to say the Bible, how to think theologically, and then we'll talk about their marriage along the way. So we did it for two full years. I see. And then the end of it is, okay, you can't you and your wife, you need to go do the same. Okay. So that's sort of the understanding coming in. Yeah. That's the high bar coming in. Yep. And I'm not going to play golf. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to do all the social things I could usually do because that Sunday's locked in and my lunches are locked in. Mm-hmm. So a busy businessman or woman, maybe they don't do that. Mm-hmm. That's not wrong. Mm-hmm. But um, at the end of the day, I have a, a friend who's a financial planner and he's been doing it. You know, he and his wife took the challenge, and they're doing okay. it, yep. and doing a great job of it, and yep. having a ball. Yeah, and it's fun. I mix. I love hanging around these young couples because I don't, you know, I don't think the way they think, and I need to learn what's important to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we bridge that gap where the old dismiss the young, the young disrespect the old, and we miss all this in the middle. Yes, yes, yeah. That's that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. Shifting gears a little bit, but. Uh, we talk a lot about at Gospel Business Strategies how should the gospel inform our stewardship of those unique privileges and responsibilities that business owners and business leaders have. What are your thoughts on that? Again, I'm not a businessman or woman. I mean, I've, I've been involved in those capacities, but that's not my first stride. I'll go back to integrity, I'll go back to being very clear about what you're doing and why. Uh, people like clarity. If you're selling a widget, they want clarity. And the reason I'm doing this is because of my faith. I, I find it striking today. There's this great dialogue among uh, what I'll call nominal Christians about the word gospel. But there's very little substantial discussion of the gospel. Mm-hmm. 
some of my friends who would fall a little more reformed than me who don't like me, <laughs> I still love them, would be mad at me because I don't say the word gospel enough. I'm saying that tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. But the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And I'm going, can you define the gospel for me? The gospel, as Paul described it, was a very clear explanation of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All four of those are key. He lived, he died, he was buried, confirmation of his death, and he's resurrected. That's the core of the gospel. He got so far in Galatians to say, if any other gospel is preached, let them be accursed. Translated, let them go to hell. Mm-hmm. We don't change this gospel. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to use the word gospel strategy, my encouragement would be mindful, mm-hmm. am I living out clearly as a business product? What motivates me is the life, death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like to say the words and works of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's a little less cliche than gospel right now. And so am I living the life of Christ in the way I treat people? We're afraid to talk about Jesus in a multi-ethnic culture where we're the last group you can beat up on. You can be a Muslim, a Hindu, you can be whatever, and we can't touch you. But sure. if you're a goodness, if you're a white male evangelical, you're the yeah. hit man, you know, you're the, the whipping boy of the day. Yeah. And so I can encourage people all the time, can you smile when you talk about your faith? Mm-hmm. I'm glad that we live in a country that can have quote freedom of religion. This isn't my home. This is my country. Mm-hmm. This is my temporary residence right now. So I'm happy I live in a culture that can have an imam and a mosque and a, and a, a Sikh and a, a Mormon ward and a Catholic church. I'm glad I live in that culture. Mm-hmm. But please understand, I hold a different view. Mm-hmm. And what my hope is pinned on is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. that he came back from the dead. He offers eternal life to any and all. So if I'm incorporating that in my business jargon or strategy, it would seem to me as a leader, I have a friend who owns a a large manufacturing company here in Nashville. And he's been working for a year and a half on his business statement. And I helped him a little bit. I was blown away by what he came up with. And and he's got, I want to say, 18 or 20 principles. And once a week, he takes one of them, writes a short email, sends it out to all his staff and all his stores. Mm-hmm. And he is unapologetically a follower of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. It's his company, for goodness sakes. Yeah, He can say what he wants. Yep. And he can smile about it. Yeah. And I think that's, to me, to give people courage. You don't have to get in an argument. Yes. You don't have to yell at somebody. Yeah. I'm glad you believe what you believe. Is it okay that I believe that Christ saved me? He forgives me of my sins, and I love him. I'm trying to serve him with the best I can, and I want to be a man of integrity. Mm-hmm. If we're going to fight about that, that's a good fight to have, right? Sure. So if we're going to use gospel and ministry and strategy and business as this nomenclature, I would just plea, goodness me, oh my, do you ever talk about the gospel? Hmm. Just because you say the word, do you understand what you have said? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, a nomenclature is important. Words have meaning. Words are powerful. Mm-hmm. And just because I say I'm, I'm a gospel Christian or this is gospel preaching or this mm-hmm. is how, yeah, there's, there's books that are unrelated. There's, there's, there's the gospel of guns book, I'm sure, out there. Sure, you know, yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, it just means good news in that vernacular. Yes. Yeah. But the way we use it, are, are we clear about our product and are we clear about our Christianity? Yes. Without being mad about it. Yes. Yep. 
Yeah, and divisive. Yeah, that's good. I appreciate that. I wanted to make sure to ask about your time as CEO and president of Moody Bible Institute. And this is 05 to 08, right? So about, about, about four years or so? Shy of four. Yeah, shy of four okay. years. So I'm just sort I'm curious what it's like leading an organization with so much history. And I'd follow it up with a question of what do you see as some of the keys for this organization to actually have been around for so long? Because that is remarkable. Mm-hmm. It was the late 1800s ish that it was yeah, started. 1886 was the, 1886. The, the, that date is still debated. 83 or 86. Okay. 1886 is on the temperature. <laughs> a long time. And, uh, and, and I was just seeing uh, one of our pastors this morning and I asked him what I should ask you as it relates to Moody Bible Institute and your time there. And he just mentioned, you know, the thing of it being around for so long, so many ministries come and go. So what do you, I'm curious to know how your time there was. And also what do you see some keys that have been true for them that has kept this ministry around for so long? So I was in Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia, for shy of 12 years in a, in a very uh, fascinating church, Emanuel Bible Church, inside the Beltway. Um, and it was a big organization. We had 50 elders. Uh, I was at some level a leader, but I was still a pastor. Going to Moody, I became a corporate executive officer slash president. Hmm. Uh, I did not know what I did not know. And it was a hundred, almost a $100 million organization, 700-ish employees, um, 23 contiguous acres in downtown Chicago. Some of those buildings dating back, you know, into the 20s, dealing with Chicago politics. It was really a a conglomerate, not just a corporation. We had a Baba College aviation publishing arm, radio uh, broadcasting network, 38 O&Os, owned and operated stations, 2,000 some repeaters, graduate school, um... Uh, there was an axiom the sun never sets on a moody grad meaning that around the world there are so many moody graduates that there's always uh, a one out of three missionary aviation pilots was trained by moody wow the history is rich so going there was a learning cliff and you know what a layback is when you climb yeah and so there's there's a sheer face but there's a layback when you climb it was it was it was a learning cliff on a layback going backwards um I was not a corporate person. They didn't hire me to be a corporate person, but that was the role. So it was a quantum change. I, I tell people it was a career change, really. To your point, historically, you're standing on a lot of shoulders. And uh, my axiom was to honor the past and plan the future. And that was sort of the the idiom that I used when I went there. I said, mm-hmm. I'd be a fool to come in here. They were coming up on their 125th anniversary, 125 years. And you know, I'm a punk Mm-hmm. Joel Stoll had been there, I believe, 16 years. Mm-hmm. My predecessor, uh, Doc Sweeting, had been there 18 years. I was the uh, eighth president in 100-plus years. Wow. So the, to your second question, which is really pertinent, Andover, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all these uh, schools were seminaries to train men to be pastors. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Andover, hmm. Ivy League schools. There was an abstract, which is a uh, it's an article, but it's a scholarly article. There's abstract literature out there that most people never touch for good reason. But in the academic world, an abstract is basically like a thesis or a dissertation on a subject that's published. So you read abstracts if you're really bored or really wonky or just a geek academic. So there was an abstract written on the rise and fall of a theological seminary, and it was it was mm. the case study of Andover. 
Hmm. To get into Andover, Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, you had to be able to read Greek and Hebrew and have a Latin and French proficiency because much of the theology was written in Latin and French. And you had to be able to handle the Bible in the original language to get into seminary. Wow. Men only. So B.B. Uh, Warfield at Princeton, the library there, it's like going back in time. It's like the most incredible room you've ever been in. But they are a completely liberal school today. The article, and forgive me for forgetting the author of the, of the Andover Seminary piece, argued that it was the change of presidents and the change of board personnel that liberalism started leaking in. Mm. I don't think anything's new. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've seen it in schools that I admire and respect. There has been a, we use the phrase tectonic, which you don't understand, not you personally, but people don't understand. Tectonic doesn't mean just big. Tectonic means underneath the earth's crusts, these two plates have been pushing at each other for a very, very, very long time under incredible heat and pressure. Mm-hmm. And finally something erupts above. Mm. That tectonic shift is a long time pressure coming. Right mm-hmm. now, there's a school in uh, Seattle area, uh, Azusa Pacific, and there's a large student group, a large faculty and staff group that want to acknowledge LGBTQA associations and friendships under the moniker of Christian, you know, mm-hmm. Um, and they formed this group and they made the headlines and the board came out a week later and said, no, no to that. I wrote uh, a friend of mine wrote an op-ed piece and I wrote him privately and I said, you missed the point in your op-ed piece. The faculty, staff and students have not changed their opinion just because the board made a statement. Mm-hmm. And he dismissed me. He said, well, the point was they took a stand and he totally dismissed what I wrote him. I said, mm-hmm. you're writing a puff piece saying, this, look, they're standing firm. They're not standing firm. They wrote a little thing and put it on their website. Yeah. Hasn't changed the mind of one student, faculty, or staff that believes in an LGBTQA fill-in-the-blank mm-hmm. relationship mm-hmm. can be a Christian relationship. Mm-hmm. And so this is what's happened. This is the tectonic pressure going on. My theory, all institutions list away from the Bible mm. at some point. And invariably, even my seminary that I love, Dallas Seminary, I don't think will last forever. Mm-hmm. They're coming up on their 100th anniversary here in 2024, and I pray to God they're different. I'm a bit of a cynic. Mm. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Andover are beautiful building testimonies, endowed edifices to liberalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, the good news is the Church of Jesus Christ and seminaries are reborn. Mm-hmm in spite of human institutions. But once you get bureaucracy, it was John Gardner who talked about the, uh, and this, this may be of some interest to you know the, the gospel business strategy. There's typically on a bell curve, there's a crisis of some kind. We need something. We need new technology. So Mevo comes along, and we can do this cheaper and affordable, mm-hmm. and there's this birth, and it's exciting, and we get people on board. I can do that. I can do that. All of a sudden, we got this birth. And we're setting up chairs and we're renting space. You know, we got, and Mm -hmm. then this little creep comes along called policy. (laughs) Uh, I want to work from home. Uh I want you to buy me in the newest MacBook. I want the newest iPhone. I don't want to commit soft. I don't like working with that person. So we have to write a policy. Mm -hmm. You got to be in the office certain hours and you got to work so many hours and you got to get your billables done. And then what happens? Somebody has to manage that policy. That is called administration. Mm 
So now we have policies we've written, which should be always and never. We always do this. We never do that. Oh, we make an exception. She's going to have a baby. We really like her. Oh, we're going to pay her maternity leave for 12 weeks. Oh, we got to keep her on. Can she work? for? Can we give her? So we start making exceptions. So what administration administers those policies? Now, what happened over here? Mevo, Apple, whatever was a cool thing. It got organized, and now we have administration. Now, mm. Gardner argued that the administration begins calcification and mm. institutionalization. Mm-hmm. Now we're an institution. Yep. Big HR, big accounting, big rules, big policies, merit pays, all this stuff figured out, longevity, stock options, blah, 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 blah. The organization begins to die. Mm-hmm. What's required, according to Gardner, was a new crisis. Okay a new birth of something. So when you look at a seminary, a business, I think that's true across the board. Just yep. as an observation of the life and death of an organization. Apple was a great example. They were almost gone. Uh, Scully's book, or was it from Pepsi to Apple? I forget the title. And, and, and uh, um, Jobs is wooing John Scully to leave his multi-million dollar contract with Pepsi to come help Apple. Yep, and he leaves the you know his his driver in Manhattan lifestyle and goes to California. And has a four by eight folding table. That's his desk. <laughs> and uh, the the big line Jobs you know hooked him on is: Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, yep. or do you want to change the world? Yep. Okay. Well, we can argue whether Steve Jobs changed the world or not, but he certainly made a lot of money, and a lot of people have employment because of that. What's happened to Apple are the crises. Mm, mm-hmm. And the crises will rebuild the brand. Yes. And now you've got a culture that is institutionalized, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Andover, to a product, OS. And we're going to take this. That's one of the main reasons I like the other the, the other version. Uh, <laughs> we're going to take this and own you. Your yeah. television, your, your technology, the phone, the computer, your laptop, your pad, all that's going away. The phone, of course, is the primary piece, correct? Yep which is why we'll spend a grand on it now. Yep. (laughs) When does that become institutionalized? Yeah. Um, Is is the folding phone going to be the new crisis that's going to move people? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Nobody does. So this, all that to say church organization, business complex, the same thing is the birth and the crisis, which goes back to clarity and the gospel in your ministry, in your business. I, I would say, call your business a ministry internally. Mm-hmm. we're ministering to this population by selling this service we're web designers we're graphics we're renderers whatever you're doing we can do a 3d model for you we can do a, a computer assisted design for you i have a friend that's got a small company that makes unique medical devices one of a mm-hmm. kind started out making models as a kid now he makes titanium gold all these exotic metals for medical devices he's supplying that to someone who needs it mm-hmm clarity what am i doing and can i smile and talk about it as a nature of the the work of christ to help people yes yes have you seen moody go through those crises is that one of the things that you've seen that has helped them sort of remain true to to mission and vision through the years one of the genius pieces of moody was a subscription instead of having tenure they have an annual subscription there's only two or three colleges in the U.S. that do this. And each year, the faculty and board sign a subscription. And it was one of the first things when I went to uh, Moody as president, CEO, which was interesting. It was a governance model. So we meet in this very 
elaborate board meeting and the chairman wraps a gavel literally okay and at that point i'm an employee okay of the board okay yes and i'm reporting to them as the president of their corporation when the meeting's over they wrap the gavel again i am now the president ceo that run the organization mm-hmm. that's how it was set up mm. one of the first functions we did was to read the doctrinal statement and sign it and can't i'm you know 40 whatever years old 42 40 i forget how old i was when i went there but i'm in tears reading this doctrinal statement mm. going these businessmen who give millions of dollars to this organization who they love to death they and i were, were reading this together and affirming 66 books of the bible are inerrant jesus was a real person the holy spirit indwells the believer sin hell death are real realities the only way to god is through christ i mean i'm weeping reading this statement and we sign it and put it in a folder and put Mm -hmm. it in the fire safe Hmm. and then i go out to the faculty meetings and uh most of faculty are gold there's always some we know some whiners sure and i did this that if you're a president you're going to take shots you're later and they were complaining about this that or the other and i said you know i sat and i told that story i sat in that meeting i cried with those men because you got to sign it too Mm. and you got two choices this is how diplomatic i am you can sign it and teach it or you can go find somewhere else to work yeah next question yeah (laughs) i'm here to debate it yep if you don't like it, go find a school that teaches something differently. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's back to the integrity of the employee. Mm-hmm. What, would I go work for XYZ Corporation if I didn't believe in him or her and what they were standing for? That's stupid on me. Yeah. Yep. Now, if you want to change an organization, it's called being an entrepreneur. Go start your own gig, Hint. Yep. Don't go try to change some company. Yes. Now, if they hire you as a change agent, that's a different digression. But yes. my point is simply at some level moody has survived because of that subscription now will it survive no entropy's tough to beat second mm-hmm. law of thermodynamics everything's falling apart and decaying mm-hmm. dallas seminary won't last forever moody won't last forever that's why we need reformers that's why we need men and women with courage mm-hmm. who can say i'm not mad at the lgbtqai organization group uh, argument screaming at me i'm not mad at them i don't hate them they may say i hate them because i'm a white evangelical male and i'm the whipping boy they may say that i don't mm-hmm. but i disagree mm-hmm. we can dialogue about this all you want i'm not going to change the doctrinal statement yeah yeah it might happen on the next guy's watch yeah i'll die on that hill or you'll fire me yeah both are valid consequences Mm -hmm. so i think that's where the courage is needed to say an organization can stand now does that mean you're going to succeed no Mm -hmm. but you'll succeed in being faithful which is more important yes than just being successful so i got to be selective here with my last couple of questions for the sake of time but i am curious what is your process for creating content to communicate and i'll see if i phrase this question properly you're a pastor, you have Michael in context, you've written a book or books, and so you're creating a lot. How do you go from an idea of what you want to communicate to making sure that the big blocks are in the right place so that you walk people through this communication journey? Maybe it's a sermon or it's something you're writing, or maybe it's just something you're communicating on the podcast. How do you go from an idea of what you want to communicate to actually structuring that and then communicating it 
properly and making sure you're covering the right things and communicating it clearly? It's a great question. And I can't apply it to a business context. In some respects, that takes a lot more brains and brawn than I have. Because if I was going to try to sell a widget or a process or a product, that's where I'd lean on other people. Mm-hmm. From a biblical theological lens, my uh, idea is here. I don't have to mm-hmm. create it. Mm-hmm. So I'm teaching through Second Peter right now at our little church. And I start with a paragraph and I read it and 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 read it, read it. And I can walk you through a little bit of a process of what I do to write a message. But to me, my job is to communicate what this says mm-hmm. so that when you're done enduring listening to me for 40 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it may be, going, I see where he got that from. Mm-hmm. I'm not clever. I'm not slick. I don't have acrostics. I don't have you know a lot of word spins and plays. Some of these people are brilliant communicators. I listen to them. I'm mesmerized. They also probably have 10 of those messages in their back pocket is where I got to produce 48 a year or more sure. if I'm speaking somewhere else. Yep. So it's a little harder to be, you know, my friend Jerry Jenkins, who's written 215 books, you know, he's got a different life than I have. Mm-hmm. He sits himself in a chair and writes for, he, he has a writing by word objective. So I'm going to write, let's say, 800 words this week or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And he writes to to goal, to deadline, he mm-hmm. calls it. Mm-hmm. So what I have to do is start with the subject. So the way I communicate then, I like bell curves. Uh, mm-hmm. Before we had computers, when we saw typewriters, I had a, a eight and a half by 11 sheet that I had thumbtacked on my wall, because I faced the wall, and I drew a bell curve. And I had the disenfranchised teenager who didn't go to a youth group and the widow or widower. Mm-hmm. And then I filled it in with generalizations of the numbers of people the this is the young married young married with kids one's college age kids empty nesters so forth and so on and and then i would write adjectives across it disenfranchised teenagers lonely mm. old persons lonely single persons you know worldview is is narrow the typical man my age who was raising four kids feels strapped and enslaved to a job to take care of his four in great in great children (laughs) or whatever it is and i would write adjectives across it yeah so when i'm writing this message and i'm looking up at the wall i'm going how does irv a widower hear that how does john that young awkward kid who won't go to youth group but likes to hear that pastor for whatever reason Mm -hmm. why does that young couple who i can feel the distance between them when they sit in the room Mm. and so now i'm thinking what is god's word mm-hmm. big blocks what is he telling them and then how do i say that in a palatable way so they can hear it mm-hmm. you can do this to people and where you know we're at their sternum hit them in the chest mm-hmm. you can be cliche you can be clever i want it to be clear mm-hmm. and i want them to say i i see where you got that yeah and i i tell young pastors who are all trying to be the next I won't name names, but we have we all have heroes that we love in the pulpit or we love on podcasts, and be that as it may. Paul says something about that in Corinth about I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paulus, I'm of you know. anyway. I digress, but I don't want I don't want that. I want them to yep. look at the Bible, and so I tell these young guys, lean on the text, depend on the text. Don't try to be clever. Yes, you don't need flash paper. You don't need a super cool video promo you don't need an animation for your series you don't need pro presenter people to work you know 20 hours on a little 
18 second thing for you. Yeah. Teach the Bible. Yeah. Make disciples of all ethnos, teaching them. Yep. Baptize them, teaching them to observe all that I told. There's a lot of all that I told you in here. Yeah, there is. Yes. <laughs> so the joy is the burdens here, Kent. Yeah. Not on me being creative and clever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a faithful way to view your teaching, certainly. And and I would say, you know, you mentioned some things there that I feel like. I don't know, I know less about your generation, but I know our generation is craving authenticity. So like for me, and I feel like my generation, it's refreshing to hear you say, we're not going to try to be clever. We're going to be clear. We're going to stick true to the word. It's authenticity. It's being genuine, having integrity. Uh, authenticity is, and I'm 61, my parents, the, the builder generation, they were too afraid. They had no resources. They were trying to survive a post-war world. And I think we need to understand they weren't mean or bad or ill-suited. Had we grown up in the Depression in the hills of World War II like my parents did, our worldview is very differently. Mm-hmm. So let's give them honor where honor is due. They didn't have emotions and feelings. They had no time for them. Mm-hmm. They're trying to survive. I visited my uncle years ago. My dad had two brothers. They're all, they all passed away. And I visited him. He never married. lived in a small town in Ford City, Pennsylvania, and um, worked for Pittsburgh plate glass for 42 years union worker ppg and um, never married had routine he took his lunch walked over to the plant got off at 328 went over to kelsey's bar had a beer went home mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. bought himself a new chevy every three years whether he needed it or not just yeah. a man of routines and uh, they took pictures a lot in the 20s and a lot of black and white photos so we're looking at these albums and i'm saying uncle denny uncle denny i said tell me about a good time a fun memory you had as a kid and unvarnished he said michael those were damn hard times i don't have any good memories wow now it wasn't my objective to cheer uncle denny up i was just mm-hmm. asking mm-hmm now, my father was the youngest of those three boys, and my dad had a much more jovial view of life mm. just because he was 18 months younger and a different personality. Fast forward to today, authenticity. My dad, before he passed away, we had to work in our relationship to find a common ground. Mm-hmm. This culture is longing for it because it's been so absent. And oh, then when yeah. you have the problem or the megalomaniac or the expose about what this guy's doing, you go, see, see, see. Well, it's real easy to point out a guilty victim. You know, yeah. when the, yeah. when smoking gun videotape DNA evidence, see, we hate him or her. Yep. Well, authenticity is is the bridge. This is the ground of Calvary's level, baby. Mm-hmm. I struggle with money, sex, and power like everybody does. Mm-hmm. I struggle with, you know, overeating. I struggle with fill in the blank, appetites. But, we don't stop there. Mm-hmm. If we just identify as we both have struggles, well, what's this say? Yeah. You know, when I talk to these young guys, you, know, you think God cares about your money? Yeah. God cares about your job? Yeah. Think he cares about raising your kids? Yeah. Think he cares about your sex life? Wait, wait, wait. Where, where, when does he not care about something in your life? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's part of what our older generation couldn't get to i see okay and so i think what we're learning now now i differentiate between transparency and nakedness sure okay you need to be transparent 
Mm-hmm. But you don't need to be naked. Yes, yes. Fair and when, point. And when it becomes yeah. catharsis, and I'm going to tell you all my stories, and right. it's all about me, now we've gone too far. Yes, you don't need to be vomiting your problems all over everybody. And when they're, yeah, totally agree. Um, but if you were just to sort of leave our listeners with one piece of advice, uh, what might that be? Study Psalm 101. Uh, Psalm 101 is what I call David's As for Me in My House. And he begins, I will sing a loving kindness and justice. To thee, O Lord, I will sing praise. It's a vertical thing. It's a choice to worship. And then he begins talking about integrity. And he says three times in there, he uses the word integrity. He says, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip upon me. And what he's saying is that the place I'm best known, I'm all alone, where nobody sees me, I'm going to keep my integrity. He makes a vertical choice to worship God. I'm going to worship God. And now, the way I live the commerce of life, the commerce of business, I'm going to do it with such integrity that I'm squeaky clean. And I find it striking. That's called an inaugural psalm, probably written for his, when he became king after, after Saul dies. Um, but the inaugural, it ends with this cryptic phrase about he'll dispense with evil on, on a regular basis, that he won't tolerate evil in his cabinet, let's say it that way. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. Where does David get in trouble? On the roof of his house, overlooking Bathsheba, when he should have been at war. Hmm. And David is a phenomenal leader king because he's repentant, and that's why he's called a man for God's own heart. So we're going to sin. We're going to fail. It's not a permission slip. It's an acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. When he failed, he repented, and he writes Psalm 51, if I could offer sacrifice, I would. If there was, In other words, if there was a provision in the law, I would do it. Subtext, I'm supposed to be killed for what I did. Mm-hmm. Yes. I murdered a man. I had an adulterous relationship with a woman. She has a baby that dies. I take her in and marry her as my umpteenth wife. God, you should kill me, but I fall in your mercy. So a vertical choice every day as a man or woman in your business to say, this is about God, not just me making a buck or helping people. Mm. A vertical Mm. choice to worship. And then a horizontal, where's my integrity lie? And then third and last, he looks at a community of people. He says, only the faithful will minister to me. And that term minister in Hebrew means to serve or work alongside. Only faithful people. So your circle, back to where we began, the people that know my secrets, know my soul, know when I need a dope slap, know when I need encouragement. Three things, vertical toward God, inward and my integrity and a horizontal with the men and women who I trust and who trust me. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, quote, I hate to say this, the key to success in the Christian life. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) A vertical worship, an inward awareness of integrity and the desperation I need that, and a community of people that will tell me the truth and walk with me thick and thin. Yes. Well, Michael, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kent. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. <laughs>